0: Hello, and welcome to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. I'm Vivian Parry. I'm a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna, and your host for a very special edition of, well, if I say it myself, a rather special podcast. Last year, we began this podcast in response to the coronavirus pandemic. We wanted to document UCL's response in all its multidisciplinary glory to everything, from the medical response to the experience of lockdown, the effect on education, on transport, and even what history teaches about pandemics. And that's exactly what we've done. Over the past year and a bit, we've spoken to medical students who took to the front line instead of taking their exams, to the UCL researchers instrumental to the vaccine development and rollout, to community leaders working hard to share vital information, and to many more people who've conducted vital, groundbreaking research under incredibly difficult circumstances in order to help us all get through the pandemic. In the process, we've learnt a lot, met some incredible people, reached out to over 80,000 listeners, and even won an award along the way. Now, with the end of the summer term, coronavirus, the whole story, is also coming to an end. Although, can I just mention that this does not spell the end of the virus, which I'm sure still has some surprises up its little protein spikes for us. Next month, we're planning a very special finale to thank all of our incredible guests. And of course, you are wonderful listeners. You can find more about that event via the link in the description to this podcast. But in the meantime, we've managed to squeeze one last episode in. Today, I'm talking to a previous guest of ours, Professor Francois Ballou and Dr. Kerry Wong, about the lockdown extension, a potential third wave here in the UK, and what this means for us mentally and physically. Professor Francois Belou is Chair in Computational Systems Biology and Chair of the UCL Genetics Institute. His research involves the reconstruction of disease outbreaks and epidemics in the human population and uses tools from genomics, epidemiology, evolution and ecology. Working with Dr Lucy Van Dorp, their team conducted the first large-scale analysis of SARS-CoV-2 genomes in order to understand the origins of COVID-19. My other guest today is Dr. Kerry Wong. She's Assistant Professor in Psychology in the Department of Psychology and Human Development at UCL Institute of Education. In April last year, she launched the UCL-PEN Global COVID Study, a longitudinal study to investigate the short and long-term impacts of the pandemic on mental and physical health and on social trust. This work was supported by the UCL Global Engagement Fund and has reached over 2,000 participants. So... Let's start with you, Francois. Many people were expecting the lifting of restrictions on the 21st of June, which is the day that this podcast is released, but that's been postponed by a month. So, Francois, why has the government taken this decision? And what's the scientific evidence on which they're basing that decision?
1: Yes, I think people were right to expect lifting of the remaining measures on the 21st of June. But then um, the situation changed a little bit. So the situation looked very good. And Then we had a outbreak, an epidemic of a new variant, sort of Delta, and this variant is more transmissible, and this has led to a spike, which currently, which is still ongoing, and and the situation didn't feel ideal to lift the final restrictions.
0: So, should we be more worried about the Delta variant? We know that it's much more transmissible, but what's the evidence that it's more pathogenic?
1: Yes, so it is definitely more transmissible. Despite that, we haven't seen the same kind of spikes everywhere in the world. So we've seen them in Asia, particularly in India, Nepal, Vietnam, in the UK. But at this stage, the situation is still a bit unclear in other parts of the world, including in continental Europe, where the variant is not rising very fast. Now, concerning its virulence, or essentially the, the risk of associated morbidity and mortality there seems to be evidence that the risk of hospitalization seems increased relative to previous variants in circulation.
0: And does that mean that I mean we're not seeing a huge rise in hospitalizations at the moment and presumably that's because of the vaccine program but where there isn't a vaccine program in place there are more hospitalizations would that be a fair way of putting it?
1: Yes, I think we, we're very fortunate to have a large fraction of the population vaccinated, but essentially most people are most at risk. And obviously this keeps hospitalization down. Not as much <laughs> as we could hope. And even a fraction of relatively young and healthy people can get hospitalized. And this rarely translates into death. So death rates remain very, very low relative to what we've seen in previous wa- waves. But the number of hospitalizations yes, is not not trivial. And this is just some people feeling very ill. And a few of those are people who have been vaccinated. So there are a few breakthrough, so-called breakthrough infections. They're generally less severe, but less severe can still mean hospitalisation.
0: So on the variant front, Sir John Bell said, uh, I paraphrase what he said, but we shouldn't be going down the variant rabbit hole every time another variant appears because they will keep appearing. What's the evidence that this will become an endemic viral infection that becomes perhaps lesser in its effects as it progresses? In other words, becomes more and more transmissible, but not as deadly? Or is that a myth?
1: So we've seen at least three jumps in transmissibility. The first one quite early, was quite early on in the pandemic. was this um, lineage carrying d 64 g and another three mutations, but at the time we didn't speak about the variants. Then we had the B117 or alpha variant and then the delta variant. And each time we saw an increase in transmissibility. Now we also, uh, twice with the alpha and the delta variant observed an increase in virulence. So um, people were more sick on average when infected. And to some extent, we, we cannot really make any real prediction on the evolution of virulence or the in, intrinsic virulence. There, there is a bit of a dogma and a myth that pathogens become nicer as they adapt to their host. Now, that's only strictly true for pathogens that are passed vertically from mother to child because then the fitness of the pathogen and, and the host are correlated. So essentially, the host dies, the pathogen doesn't isn't passed on to anyone. And also for extremely virulent pathogens, let's say pathogens that kill maybe 80% of the host. And then there's selective pressure to reduce virulence. But for something like SARS-CoV-2, first, the the virulence is just not high enough to really, the risk of death of the host is just not high enough to um, exert a very strong selective pressure on the virus. Moreover, a large fraction of the transmissions of the infections happen prior to any symptom. So, I really don't think we can make any good prediction about the variants, But that is really intrinsic virulence. What happens is that people who have been exposed to the virus or who have been vaccinated, they generally will feel very mild symptoms, maybe no symptoms at all. So, once the population, a sufficient fraction of the population, has been exposed and is protected, either by the vaccine or prior infections then the virus will seem much less virulent.
0: Ah, so I understand now, Francois, you've managed to explain why it is that we think this is that it's actually principally because what we're observing is not the virus becoming less virulent, but the effect of more and more people having at least partial immunity to it. So whereas you would have got the full-blown symptoms before, now you're just snivelling instead. So are we expecting a third wave and how bad is this wave going to be?
1: So it depends a bit on the definition, but I, we could argue that the UK is currently experiencing a third wave. It is obviously not at a stage as dramatic as previous waves. There's a lot of uncertainty how, how the situation will evolve over the coming days and weeks. I have to admit that I really don't know, so I would not be particularly surprised if, let's say, a doubling tripling the number of cases over, over the coming weeks but I would not be much more surprised if it started plateauing or even started slightly decreasing. We are really on the, on the edge of a knife here in terms of, let's say, the, the epidemic dynamic. It could turn at any point. It's quite a difficult situation, I would say, psychologically and politically to deal with.
0: And should we be putting more restrictions in place or should we be balancing on our knife edge a little longer?
1: That's an interesting point. I don't think that scientists like me should make such recommendations in public. I feel these are deeply political decisions. And when I mean political, I don't mean it in a bad way. I mean it as decisions that should be taken by elected politicians to the benefit of the population. So, what the epidemiology and the science essentially can inform on is what's happening but also make some projections that are often imperfect, especially long-term projections, but as we have some half-decent projections over the coming weeks or some scenarios, essentially there's sometimes constant uncertainty. And I feel scientists should inform the public and politicians about those, but I don't think it's the role of a scientist actually to decide on the more kind of measures that should be taken by governments.
0: Which brings us perfectly to Carrie to talk about, I guess, the other side of this equation, you know, what it means for the public. You've been conducting this study on the mental and physical health impacts of the pandemic. What have you found? We've learned quite a lot, actually,
2: given the longitudinal design of the study and the continued support from our participants around the world. But just briefly, the survey included a three 30-minute survey which coincided with UK lockdowns one, UK lockdowns two and three, and also right now the easing of lockdown. So we're currently still collecting new data from from the easing of lockdown, and we're going to be analysing some of that too. I'll highlight about Three or four key results from the study so far. The first one is related to age differences for some of the mental health variables that we've measured. Consistent with quite a lot of the ongoing COVID studies out there where they've sampled people every week and sometimes monthly, we find that even over a six-month and 12-month period, the young people in our sample aged 18 to 24 years old as a group they were reporting generally higher mean levels of anxiety, depression, aggression. They were exercising less than before lockdown, of course, but this is slowly improving given the easing of restrictions. The same group, are, they are reporting poor sleep and higher levels of stress although we don't really find age differences across levels of loneliness and empathy as well. We find that this is interesting because it's not different across the various countries that respondents have been responding from. And then in terms of stress, people have identified various stressors. The top five that have been identified over the first six months of the lockdown have been things like other people not social distancing, there's the uncertainty surrounding covid Future plans being up in the air, other people not wearing face masks, for example, unclear government guidelines. That has definitely been a key feature in the second wave of our survey. But most of these stressors have actually improved now that we're 12 months down into the line and more. But the persistent causes of stress reported in our latest wave, not surprisingly, as restrictions are easing, have been about mental health, physical health, work worries, as well as marriage and romantic relationship conflict and challenges as well. So I would say these four kind of areas are key concerns and areas that perhaps will still be ongoing concerns even after the lockdown eases. And then we come to social trust and mistrust, which is a key component of our study when we look at all of these variables together, social trust and the mental health measures in our study, we find that they are uh, highly correlated, meaning that people who are reporting higher levels of mistrust in others, they tend to also report poorer mental health and poorer physical health as well. In fact, individuals who've been persistently mistrustful over the 12-month period, we found that they are reporting especially high levels of anxiety, reactive aggression, uh, loneliness, depression, and so forth. So, you know, it's it's important that we are focusing also on individuals that are uh, constantly, I guess, sus- have this sustained persistent mistrust over this a long period of time. Although most people in our society, they will have high social mistrust perhaps at the beginning of the COVID pandemic because of various reasons, but most of them return back to normal as we would expect as well. So really it's the, the individuals who have um, the sustained fear that other people are not uh, safe or that we are not able to safely go about our day-to-day lives. Those individuals are the ones that are the group that we need to be most concerned about.
0: So you've, you've got those two groups. You've got those people who are really probably still afraid to go out. They're very anxious about it. And then you've got the ragers on the other end who are raging about not being able to do what they want. So that those are the two ends of the spectrum.
2: Yes pretty, pretty much it. And then I guess the final kind of key theme or or finding that's really come through quite uh, strongly in our most recent wave, as we know, across the data collection time points as well, is that more people are experiencing loss and grief. This is either directly through losing close family members or loved ones, and or friends as well so we know that about 8% of our respondents say that they've experienced a loss of a family member or close friend between October last year and January this year and that this has increased to about 15% in the latest wave so between April this year and our current survey so i would say you know that's also another area a key area of concern when we think about how to recover from the pandemic and the easing of lockdown. Just even thinking about our relationships with people around us and being aware and and cognizant of other people's situations as well, I think will be quite important.
0: So if there were to be another lockdown, rather than just a kind of lockdown extension, lockdown light, as it might be termed, what kind of toll do you think this is having on those two groups at your extremes?
2: Yeah, so I would say for the extreme group where they are desperate to, you know, return to normal and go out again, I think that will definitely not be welcome news for them. We are as humans also not as patient as well. And the, and the whole pandemic has really drawn out probably longer than most people would have expected. But I do think also, given the fact that we're constantly being updated, we're getting constant updates from scientists, and people are perhaps engaging with the news and the facts, that they are then able to understand the reasons perhaps why the easing of lockdown has, has to be postponed. The on the other side, you know, with the group where they have constantly felt this sustained mistrust anyway, that they're feeling fearful of re-entering into society and re, you know, going back into work. I think there, we really need to highlight the importance of safety. So how can we make people feel safe enough to reintegrate and go back to work, for example, or even safe enough to walk around on the streets or go to the shops? I think it's very important that we're able to ensure that that support is available to people.
0: And it is very confusing for people at the moment. There seems to be no logic in allowing lots of people to be watching the Euros together, and yet no dancing allowed at weddings. Yes, that seems to me uh, uh, as a as a stepmother of a bride whose wedding is this weekend. I'm feeling those restrictions and those inconsistencies. But uh, w- one of the things that particularly interests me about your research, Carrie, is is the social trust aspect. Because social trust is the glue that binds us all. How low is social trust at the moment? And how hard is it going to be to rebuild social trust and emotional resilience so that whatever comes next, we're better prepared for it?
2: Yes, that's a great question, and definitely a key component of my research interests. I guess there are two parts to that. The first is that we have to remember or think about trust as an ongoing relationship and something that builds on. And the fact that, you know, once you lose that trust, it's very hard for people to regain that trust. This could be with other people, just general relationships you have in your life, but also with institutions and governments in in which we vest that, you know, we vested this trust in them to make good decisions on our behalf. I would say there's Two groups in our our society, for example, those who are more forgiving, you'll be able to regain their trust uh, over time with better perhaps policies or improvements in their situations and environments. But there will also always be a smaller group where that level of trust in others is always going to be quite low. And in my research, I study specifically that group where they have high what we call social mistrust in others. And therefore, over time, if they have this persistent mistrust, that can be harmful for their health, both mentally and physically. But also overall now, as we see it in this pandemic, for public health policies as well, it's difficult for us to then convince the same maybe small group to engage in adopting vaccines, for example or to enable them to be able to function in their daily lives as well, to feel safe enough to go out. So yes, it's going to be hard. It, it has changed as well, social trust over the pandemic year. Um, we only have data for the pandemic year, unfortunately, so I can only speak to that. But levels of trust have been uh, improving in this last wave as we're seeing the easing of lockdown. I do think we need to be cautious in, in thinking about how quickly we ease lockdown as well, there are still some groups who may need to feel safe before they can then get on with their lives, so to speak.
0: Francois, I wanted to ask you about social trust, uh, where it involves scientists, because there's been a, a bit of an attempt lately, I think, to blame scientists for all of this. But how do you feel, how's your perception of how the public... Feel about science and scientists and how they've done in COVID.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think it, it probably depends who you would ask, but very generally in society, I think um, there's been a lot of interest in science. And this possible for instance, on Twitter to discuss topics requires some kind of background knowledge. With, with lots of people who are not scientists, and it would have been completely impossible say a year ago so people have learned a lot there's been a lot of interest in science and well (laughs) there's also been some disappointments i would say maybe some realization that science um, can also go that far and i would say maybe some of my colleagues may not always have been careful enough when they kind of presented scientific evidence and maybe not with the whole uncertainty and the doubts and I would probably personally argue that science has been sometimes conflated with moral, ethical views that have very little to do with science, and they were kind of sold under the umbrella of science. And when people obviously disagree strongly, and they see that something is sold under the umbrella of science, they might criticize the science, rather than realize that maybe it wasn't really a scientific statement. So uh, I think... As scientists, and generally the image of science, will face an interesting situation in post pandemic uh, with this kind of dual dynamic of a huge interest in science, and particularly you know, infection and immunology, but also um, the risk that there might be some distrust, actually, probably additional distrust that was not that fully present before the pandemic. I I foresee some (laughs) quite actually interesting and at times possibly difficult moments um, in the relationship between scientists and the wider public.
0: That's very interesting. And it's interesting because I suspect we all, when we were first taught science at school, were taught that science was about certainty. And, you know, if you gave the wrong answer to what colour is copper sulphate, then, you know, there was only one answer. It wasn't like history where there could be interpretation. And maybe that's something that we need to get out to the public more, is that, you know, science is, is right until it's wrong and you're constantly trying to disprove it. The uncertainty is something that we have not yet managed to, to get across. But I, I wanted to finish by asking you both to do something that I've asked lots of guests during this podcast series, which is to give you each a magic wand. And with this magic wand, you are able to do anything you like. And the thing that I would ask you to address in this particular instance is what would you do with your magic wand? And by the way, it comes with a money, no object clause attached to it. What would you do to help the public right now? That's a great question. As a psychologist, I would
2: probably try and make everyone see eye to eye. So being able to find similarities between yourself and others around you, I think at this crucial moment, given that we've, we've this shared global experience together, I think will be something that will be good.
0: And Francois, how about you?
1: Yeah, I think for me, it would clearly be better vaccine equity, so essentially being able to offer the possibility of vaccination to everyone who were in the world quite soon, because that would accelerate the end of the pandemic quite dramatically, because I think we're actually slowly getting out of the pandemic in Europe and the US, but we'll linger on for, for quite a while in parts of the world. And-,
0: and there will be many more variants to come, I suspect, because of that.
1: Not because of that. I think there will be many more variants to come, and and this is not as horrible as it may sound. I think I think actually there will be so many variants that at some point no one will be able to uh, know them all, and people will just we just start ignoring them, except a the few people who are obsessed by them. Oh,
0: like François Balou. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, but that's my job, and I don't think everyone should be obsessed with variants. <laughs>
0: Well, there you have have it. From Francois Valloux himself, you should not be obsessed by variants. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure talking to you both. And I really appreciate you coming on to this particular programme. You know, here we have in you both a, a microcosm of some of the very best things being brought together, you know, the genomics and the psychological aspects of COVID and both being presented together. Fantastic stuff. So, you have been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This last episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges. It was edited by Karis Bradley, who's been absolutely outstanding. And because it's the last episode, I wanted to give a special shout out to Steph Luacco, Daisy Voke, Evie Calder and Anna Cornelius. I was joined today by Professor Francois Ballou and Dr Kerry Wong. And if you'd like to hear more of these podcasts, and there's a fantastic back catalogue now from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. And if you want to hear more about Kerry's work, which is fascinating, it's going to be shared in a free webinar series, Lessons from COVID-19, Reflections, Resilience and Recovery, and we've put the registration link in the description of this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this series. It's been the greatest pleasure presenting it. Bye for now.